to you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bible, in our series through the book of Ephesians, we have two more messages, Lord willing, in this uh, book, today's and then next Sunday's. Gospel truth that leads to gospel living. I want to encourage you to come out to our Fellowship Baptist Academy uh, Christmas cantata tonight at 6 o'clock. We are still planning on going forward with that. And uh, I hope you'll come and support those kiddos tonight. We'll also have some of our little children's choirs singing from the Little Learners Academy. The Squeakers Children's Choir will be singing to open up tonight. It'll just be a great night um, of, of Christmas music. So I hope you'll come for that. Bring your, bring your loose dollar bills or even your credit card because we take that in the K-Cafe too. We're having a blowout pastry sale tonight. All of the proceeds go to Fellowship Baptist Academy and Little Learners Academy. And so I hope you'll come buy a, buy a warm drink, coffee beverage or, or a frappe, that's a cold drink, or a lemonade or a hot chocolate or whatever else they have. And then, you know, Liz will, and some others will be putting together some pastries and those will be great. So that'll be open today after the service. That'll be open tonight before and after the service. I hope you'll come and spend a little extra since we're kind of emphasizing Fellowship Baptist Academy and uh, throw some support their, their way. The message this morning is titled this, Standing Strong in Spiritual Warfare. Standing Strong in Spiritual Warfare. Tuesday, June 6, 1944, at 6.30 a.m., 5,000 ships carrying 160,000 Allied troops approached the southern beaches in France for the largest invasion in modern history, what we know now as D-Day. Some of the men who survived the invasion said that they remember the steady stream of exhortations being broadcast over the ship intercoms in the final minutes as the ships approached the French beaches. Things said like this, fight to get your troops ashore, fight to save your ships. And if you got any strength left, fight to save yourself. They said, we may die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. They said, this is it, men. Pick it up. Put it on. You've got a one-way ticket. And this is the end of the line. And over 2,500 Americans died that day, many in a span of 15 minutes. I'm not necessarily mentioning this moment in history to invoke patriotism this morning. I think our church is pretty, pretty patriotic. I believe our church, rightfully so, is very thankful for our soldiers past and present. I share this bit of history with you to emphasize that the men that approached the beach in Normandy that day had no delusions about what they were walking into. None of them thought they were going to an exotic beach in France for a vacation. They were walking headfirst into the onslaught of an enemy who wanted nothing more than to destroy them. And at the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul pulls back the curtain on our spiritual life and he shows us what, what we are in the midst of. And it's a battle. As Christians, a battle no less stringent with an enemy no less fierce. The, the tragedy is that many of us have no idea that we're even in a battle. We approach the Christian life as if it were a vacation rather than a war. Like a playground rather than a battleground, but it's not. A life that has been truly changed by the gospel finds itself daily in a battle, a spiritual battle. 
John MacArthur helps us to understand this contextually. He says the true Christian described in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 who lives the faithful life described in chapters 4 verses 1 through chapter 6 verse 9 can be sure that he will be involved in the spiritual warfare described in chapter 6 verse 10 through 20. The faithful Christian life is a battle. If you're walking worthy of our calling in humility rather than pride, in unity rather than divisiveness, in the new self rather than the old, in love rather than lust, in light rather than darkness, in wisdom rather than foolishness, in the fullness of the spirit rather than drunkenness of wine, and in mutual submission rather than self-serving independence, then we can be absolutely certain we will have opposition and conflict. And if you're not having opposition and conflict in your life, you're not on the right team. Or you're on the right team but not going in the right direction. C.S. Lewis said... When it comes to the devil and his demons, people usually fall into one of two errors. Either they take him altogether too seriously or they do not take him seriously enough. If we are in a real battle, that means we have a real enemy. A real enemy. Maybe you've known some Christians who, who fit into that first category that C.S. Lewis described. They attribute every inconvenient circumstance to the devil. They blame him for everything. A dead car battery. It's the devil's fault. A train that stopped on the tracks when you're late to work. It's the devil's fault. A price increase at the grocery store. Biscuits are now over $2 and they can't, they, they blame the devil for ruining their budget to tithe, right? But others commit an equally dangerous error. They ignore the devil altogether. Scripture is too clear to take the devil lightly. To ignore the reality of the devil would be like walking onto the beaches of Normandy with, with a floaty and, and a beach towel. Here's what we do know about the devil. Several things. He's strategic. Verse 11, look at it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means schemes or tricks. It means the devil's crafty. He's really good at what he does. And hey, it makes sense why he's so good. He's been at it for thousands and thousands of years. He's been studying the human tendency since the very first married couple in the garden. Think about it. If you had a hundred years to study math and math only, you'd get pretty good at it. If you had a thousand years to study only math, you would become an Einstein. Yet the devil has had multi-millennia to study and master humans. No wonder he's the master manipulator. When I say that he is strategic, I'm saying that he's going to attack you from whichever angle you are most prone to be vulnerable. He's not going to attack you in an area in which you're strong. He's going to attack you in which you're weak. He's not going to attack you at a time in which you're strong. He's going to attack you at a time in which you're vulnerable. So I looked through Scripture and I studied a little bit of the clear places in Scripture where the devil has worked so strategically and differently and tailored fit for who he's attacking. And I, I put together a list. Look at it. He can interject an image into our minds of something enticing but sinful. If you want Scripture references to these, I can give them to you after church. He exploits a sinful tendency such as anger or lust or greed, causing it to flare out of control. He inspires others to create a principle or teaching or an idea that sounds plausible but is wrong and dangerous to our souls. I've seen it happen. He inflicts us with physical illness or condition. He can send a horrible dream or, or, or even some, some kind of de demonic thought during the night that produces fear. He can entice us to lie. He can instigate a series of horrible natural calamities, the death of a loved one, the loss of one's home, the destruction or loss of property, as in the life of Job. His strategies, church, are innumerable, and, and they're tailored fit to, 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 to really strategically attack the one 
that he's after. The devil is strategic, but he's also invisible. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The word wrestle tips us off to the fact that the devil's near. You don't wrestle from far away, but he doesn't appear to us as though he's near. He's not as obvious as flesh and blood. Instead, he's more like a lion hunting for its prey. He doesn't want to be seen because surprise is the strength of his attack. By the way, that's how I know cats are demons. Because the devil's part of the cat family. That was free. This idea, though, of the devil being invisible and disguised, it, it's what makes us feel too comfortable sometimes. We have a hard time believing in something we can't see. Just like in 1864, a, a physician named Ignis Simmelweis, I don't know if that's exactly how you say it, but he stumbled onto a theory we know now called germ theory. Back then, doctors would go between patients without ever washing their hands. They would go from dealing with a dead corpse to delivering a baby. Without ever washing their hands, that's why hospital rates in this day were so high. Well, well, this physician began to suspect that they were carrying diseases with them in small particles that were invisible to the human eye. He didn't know what to call them, so he called them microbes. The idea of germs today seems so obvious to us, but nobody in those days thought that way. In fact, doctors wouldn't accept this theory because the idea that all this destruction and death was caused by something you couldn't see seemed unbelievable to them. Even his own wife didn't believe in him. He died in an asylum. What makes the devil so dangerous? I'll tell you what. Because we can look back afterwards, after a temptation, and we can see traces of his involvement in the midst of that. But it's much harder to see and discern his attack in the present. The devil's powerful as well. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rules, darkness of the world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, there have been multiple interpretations and debates about what each of these titles for the devil and his demon represents. But t Paul doesn't give us certain details because I don't feel like I can be dogmatic about any of it. Here's what we know. Paul uses terminology that would have been suggestive in that day of a hierarchy in the demonic realm. In other words, it seems like the devil commands a vast army of demonic spirits as kind of a part of a control structure. Now, to know the details of that structure is not Paul's point. Paul wants to convey to us that the devil is not fighting by himself. But that he has amassed an army of devils and demons to battle us. In other words, he's powerful. So, so what is this knowledge about our enemy supposed to do for us? Paul's trying to bring us to a point of dependence. Not upon ourselves, but upon God. He's not trying to scare us. He's trying to wake us up to the fact that we are in a real battle, facing a real enemy, one in which we cannot fight on our own. Thus, Paul's main admonition in the text today is this, stand strong. Verse 11, be strong in the Lord. Verse, uh, verse 10, verse 11, that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, that you may be able to withstand. Verse 14, stand therefore. Here's Paul's burden because we are in a battle. Because our enemy is real. He's strategic, invisible, powerful. We must learn how to stand strong against him. The idea of standing has a clear implication. It means that you can't run from the fight. Did you hear me? If you're to stand strong, you can't tuck, tail, and run. In fact, there are only two places that the Christian life... Uh, in the Christian life in which Paul says a Christian should flee sexual immorality and the love of money. A Bible college professor told my class this, when it comes to the monies and the honeys, you get out of town. <laughs> Everywhere else, though, you have to learn how to stand firm. 
You can't escape the battle. You can't put spiritual bubble wrap around yourself or around your kids or around your home or around your grandkids. If you're saved, you're going to have to learn how to stand in the battle, not run from it. And when Paul is commanding us to stand strong, he's not telling us just to toughen up or to power up or to put our big boy pants on. Doesn't matter how big your pants are. They're not big enough to face the devil. He's saying be strong in the strength of the Lord. He is our only hope in the battle. Paul has spent a lot of time in the, in the book of Ephesians teaching this concept. And in verse 2, he, he taught us that when we get saved, that we have the same power that, that, that God used to raise Jesus from the grave, Ephesians chapter 2. Or, or rather the last part of chapter 1. And then you get to Ephesians chapter 2, and he teaches us how to access that power through the inner uh, strengthening of, of, of the Spirit of God. And we pray. And when we pray, he promises to give us power that, that God will work in us and through us and for us to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Paul is saying this you have a real battle, you have a real enemy, you can't run. So stand strong in the strength of the Lord. So how do we do that? Two ways. I'll give you one today and the second one next week. You stand strong in spiritual warfare by equipping yourself with the armor of God. The armor of God. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Here's what Paul's telling us. He's telling us that Christians wear divine equipment. Here's something important to remember. When Paul mentions this equipment, he's not bringing up entirely new content in this section like something he wants to randomly add on to the end of his letter. These pieces of armor are simply ways of applying the gospel that Paul's already talked about for six chapters. You see, Paul was chained to a Roman guard as he was writing this. That's why I think he closes with this metaphor. The Holy Spirit used that. To make it more vivid in our mind what he's already been teaching us for six chapters. Our, uh, our, it, it, armor was these, these, this thick piece of iron that, that, that were used to cover places on a soldier's body that were vulnerable during a battle. Spiritually speaking, the pieces of armor that Paul mentions here are where you apply the grace of God to an area of your life where you're vulnerable. And where you're weak. Here's the main point when it comes to the armor of God. Then I'm going to study each piece briefly today. The gospel should cover every part of your life. Because where the gospel has fortified you, Satan cannot attack you. If I had to wrap it up there, I could go to work on that statement. But the gospel should cover every part of your life. Because where the gospel has fortified you, Satan cannot attack you. In other words, where you're weak, the gospel can make you strong. If you learn to cover your life with it, the strong Christian wears divine equipment. And putting on that divine equipment every day is how you fulfill the command of standing strong in the Lord. So let's talk about the equipment. He speaks about the belt of truth in verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. The belt of truth, that goes around your core. It would hold all your weapons and the rest of your armor in place. Now, as far as the metaphor goes, this one's really important because nobody wants to go to battle with your pants on the ground. What does Paul mean by, by the belt of truth metaphorically? Well, there's a who and there's a what to truth. 
The who of truth is Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. If Jesus is the truth, then you are to gird yourself with him every day. He is what holds together everything else in your life, which tells me this, you must first know him in salvation. Can't put on a piece of armor you don't have. If we are to put on the Lord Jesus, you've got to know the Lord Jesus in a personal relationship. I'm not taking for granted, even on this wintry day, that everyone under the sound of my voice has been changed by the gospel. The gospel is that you were a sinner, but Jesus is your Savior. And God sent him down. He clothed himself in the flesh. He died on a cross for your sin. And all you've got to do is believe and, com- and commit your life to him and call upon him to be your Savior. And you will be saved. That's where it starts, but, but for the saved one, it, it continues after salvation because Jesus must remain your identity. I've always heard that your identity is based on what the most important person in your life thinks about you. I wonder if that person is Jesus for you and if you've made what he thinks about you your core identity today. Or do you care more about what somebody else thinks about you? See, if if so, that's a place Satan can attack because he will attack in the areas of your life where you find your identity in something or someone other than Jesus. The belt of truth is a who, but it's also a what because truth isn't just a person. It is a perspective based on the truth, the word of God. Listen, church, you need to have a grounded perspective of truth when it comes to things like sexuality. And marriage and dating and entertainment and spending money and parenting and many other things. Can I ask you today, how do you determine what is true and right in your life? How do you determine that? For some people, they rely on their internal compass, what feels right. They let God influence them, but at the end of the day, they do what feels right to them. For others, they follow the whims of popular opinion, whatever their friends say or closest family members say or professors at college say or their favorite artist or athlete or political talking head. Whatever they think is what I do. The only way to, dis- to escape daily the deception of the enemy is to let the word of God reshape your thinking. Do you know the Bible? Do you know it? These aren't just doctrines to learn. These are means of survival. Where you're not covered with the truth of the word of God, you are being exposed to the attack of the enemy. If the Bible isn't shaping your mind about sexuality, that's where Satan will attack. If the Bible isn't shaping your mind about financial stewardship, that's where Satan will attack. If the Bible isn't shaping your mind about marriage and parenting, that's where Satan will attack. If the Bible isn't shaping your mind about your overall purpose in this life, that's where Satan will attack. Gird yourself with truth. And then being equipped the armor of God continues with putting on the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? Well, the breastplate would cover the vital organs. So, so what does Paul mean by By covering your vital organs with righteousness. Well, I think we've got to start with the gospel again. Being covered with righteousness means first embracing our identity in Christ. Where do I get that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The doctrine is called imputed righteousness. See, a good way to think about this in terms of armor 
is that we've always seen the Roman breastplates had the abs already carved into them, right? And the perfectly sculpted pecs. Which is good news because if someone like me put on a breastplate, you're going to see perfect abs and pecs in spite of the jiggle that's behind the breastplate. Praise his name. It's called imputed righteousness. We were fat and ugly in our sin, but through Jesus, we've been made beautifully righteous in God's eyes. Or you could say it this way. The love handles of our sin became his and his perfect abs of righteousness became ours. I like that interpretation. Seriously, though, we live, we have to learn to live in the identity that we've been given through the gospel. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. He'll tell us we haven't been made right with God when we have been made right with God. But I also think there's an obedience element here because not only are we covered in Christ's righteousness, but we bring our lives into conformity to his righteousness. That's why I titled the the series through Ephesians, Gospel Truth Leads to Gospel Living. It's not enough just to to let the gospel make you feel good about yourself. you got to live it. And Satan will use whatever part of you that is not conformed to Christ's righteousness in you, and he will make that his focal point of attack. Are you listening? Maybe it's a bad habit that you know is sinful, but, but you don't take seriously enough to break. It's a temptation that you can't say no to. It's someone that you can't forgive. It's a bad relationship you won't let go of. Or it's just an area of your life that you aren't surrendered to Christ in and you're not following God's word in like the area of dating or or spending money or the activities that you place before God's house on the weekend. Whatever area of your life that is not brought into the obedience of God's word is an area that is most vulnerable for Satan's attacks. Paul goes on and says you need to put on the shoes of gospel peace. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I've often heard that that the sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon for the Christian, but that's not true. Shoes are offensive weapons too. They had a defensive element to them to be able to stand strong and stand firm in place. But the Roman soldiers didn't stand all day long. They advanced forward in battle as well. And Paul says we overcome Satan by going on the offense with the gospel. In other words, sharing the gospel overcomes Satan's attack both in our life and in the lives of others. Listen, we can make the difference in somebody's life when we share with them the gospel of peace that's changed our life. We can thwart Satan's attacks on their life when we introduce the gospel to them. Yet a lot of Christians just plain out don't share the gospel at all. They don't. And here's why. A lot of us think that that the people we could share the gospel with at work or in our family or otherwise just aren't interested. They're not interested in hearing it. And that's probably right, but how can they ever get interested in hearing the gospel if they've never heard it? You see, the gospel has the power of creating spiritual interest to those who are disinterested. One person said, true soul winners believe two things. First, they believe that salvation belongs to God. Second, they believe that faith only comes by hearing. In other words, God saves, but the word of God can only go to work once it has been spoken to somebody. The word of God is what creates interest in the word of God. Therefore, listen, Christian, listen, soldier, learn how to share the gospel. Learn how to do it. On top of that, Learn how to tell your salvation testimony to other people. It can start by today going home and typing out your salvation testimony and posting it on Facebook. That'll be better than a lot of things y'all post sometimes. 
That'll be quite refreshing for somebody to see on your feed how Christ has changed your life. Question, have you ever articulated that to anybody? Do you know how to take a natural everyday conversation and shift it into a gospel conversation without being a jerk about it? Do you know how? It is a craft. It is a learned art. The Holy Spirit helps you. He guides you. But it's something you prepare yourself for. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Do you share the gospel with anybody? Because you have the power to thwart Satan's attacks in their life. It's like seeing a fellow soldier getting attacked and you stand there and put your gun down and let it happen. Why is it so important to share the gospel? Here's why. Satan is after the souls of your family members. He's after the soul of your friends and your co-workers and the waitress that serves you and the cashier that scans your groceries and the mechanic that fixes your car and the doctor that examines you. Satan wants to keep them lost in their sin. But you and I carry a message of peace that can break them free from their sin and thwart the devil's attacks in their life. Yet we hold it to ourselves. We let the devil rampage these people that we love. And we stand over there and basically say, good luck with that. But sharing the gospel of peace doesn't just help somebody else, it helps us. You know why? Because those who are disengaged from God's mission, which is sharing the gospel, they become spiritually idle and bored. And ultimately, that's who Satan can attack the easiest. Oh, yeah. The, the, the Christians who are most critical are the ones that haven't shared the gospel with anybody. They're the ones whose hearts are open to become chronically critical and negative and toxic people. Just ask King David, when did he fall into adultery? When he stayed at home. When he was disengaged from the battle. When everyone was off to war, David is lounging and that's when he fell. Listen, if you're saved, you need to be actively serving and sharing Jesus Christ. And the best place to do that is to get involved in the mission of your local church that you belong to. Hey, if you're a member of Fellowship Baptist Church, refuse to be a spectator. Refuse to be a consumer. Get on the front lines. Share Jesus. Give so others can share Jesus. Stay engaged in the battle and Satan won't have as much opportunity in your life. He moves on to the shield of faith in verse 16. What is a shield? It's there to protect your heart from Satan's fiery darts. I believe he's speaking of the lies that, that Satan will throw at your heart every day. He is the father of lies, by the way. And you're not supposed to just stand there as a soldier and try to out-reason those darts. It won't work. You're not supposed to stand there as a soldier and try some foot ninja work to avoid them. It won't work. You're supposed to hide behind your shield. Shield of faith. Which means that every time the devil shoots a lie at your heart that is in direct contradiction to what the gospel says is true about you, you must put up your shield of faith and believe in what God has said is true about you and for you. Satan will hurl, hurl this lie at you. You're no good. You're nothing. You're pathetic. Your pastor's unredeemable. When he does, you put up your shield of faith and you believe what the gospel says you are in Ephesians chapter 1. You are chosen. You are adopted. You are a child of God. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are secured for all of eternity. Amen. The devil will say, man, you can never make a difference. You're not talented enough. God will never use you. And you point the devil 
with your shield of faith, you hold that up and you believe Ephesians chapter 2 that says, For I am his workmanship, created into Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. I not, may not be as talented as you, but God has given me a gift to use. The devil will say your marriage will always be bad. You'll never be a good parent. You'll always be in debt. You'll never feel better. So what you do is you put up your shield of faith and you believe what the gospel says in Ephesians 2. I used to be dead in my sins. I, I used to walk according to the, to the desires of the flesh at will. I, I used to walk according to the course of the world. I, I used to be a nature, the child by nature a child of wrath. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, and God, who is great in love, He's quickened me. He's made me alive in Christ Jesus. He's raised me up. He's changed me by His grace. And devil, you might not be, you might be right. I might not be everything that I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And by God's grace, I'll continue to be what He wants me to be. That's not positive talk. Only. That's not the power of positive thinking where you look in the mirror and you say, I'm chosen. I'm redeemed. Now go away, devil. It's a daily vocabulary. The devil will not, will not come to you and say, hey, just want you to know at 945 this morning, I'm going to attack you. You need to have a couple verses ready for me. Just want you to know this coming Friday night, you're going to get a text message. It's going to be a tempting text message. I just want you to know, prepare yourself for that. Make, make sure your shield of faith is at hand. Walking with the shield of faith is 24-7. It's living with the gospel truth in you. It's not looking at the mirror and pumping yourself up. It's right smack dab in the midst of a testing trial. Right smack dab in the midst of a testing temptation. You're able to pull that shield of faith out because it's in here. You know the gospel truth. And you can fight with it. He moves on to the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. I think this repeats in a new way some of what we've already said, but specifically your head is where you think. Now I want to get to something very applicable. Watch. Paul is telling us that, that we got to let the truth about our salvation and the grace in our life permeate our thinking. So, so gospel thinking, biblical thinking that is aligned with who we are in Christ, that's our defense against the thoughts the devil wants to plant in our minds. And I could go a number of ways with this. And I want to apply it in a way that I don't think the church talks about enough. And that's mental illness. That's an area that the church seems to avoid because we don't know much about it. Or, or in, our, in our ignorance, we, we've, always, we've always said you just need to get right with God and you won't struggle with that. But do you know that mental illness is very real? Don't talk to me that depression is fake unless you've been in a depression. And sometimes it's completely genetical or physical or clinical. But let's be honest too, on the flip side of that coin, I'm convinced that sometimes mental illness has a demonic element to it. You know, at the very least, you might struggle with a clinical mental illness, but the devil will come on the backside of that and make it worse. You know, I'm, I'm saying this, he adds his demonic thoughts to the person who already struggles with depression. He adds his demonic thoughts to the person who already struggles with self-worth. He adds his demonic thoughts to the person who already struggles with bipolar disorder. He adds his demonic thoughts to the person who, al who already struggles with PTSD and schizophrenia and anxiety. That's why if you're here today or you're watching today and you're prone to be ill in your mind, you must be aware of your vulnerability because the devil attacks your weaknesses.
But if you're mentally ill, there's hope. Your mind can be made strong in the Lord. You are not helpless. You can defend yourself by getting in the daily habit of putting on the helmet of salvation through gospel thinking. I'm not at all saying it's the cure-all to clinically diagnose mental illness, but it is the, the protectant against letting mental illness kill you through demonic influence. If you are prone to battle with those things, here's what I want to I say to you as a pastor. I don't want you to walk through that alone. If you're depressed, you're struggling with, with a bipolar disorder that you're ashamed of and, and you're embarrassed about, if your mind is incredibly prone to addictions, if you struggle with a high amount of anxiety, you don't have to walk through that alone. There are other soldiers in here that can help you. And even if you don't have the strength and you don't have the hope to pick up your helmet of salvation every day, call somebody, call another soldier, have them pick up the helmet for you and remind you of everything that you are in Christ Jesus. Give you one more. That's the sword of the Spirit. Speaking of the Word of God, if you've noticed, the Word of God seems to have found its way into every application about every piece of armor. So I won't spend a lot of time here, but let me tell you this. Please listen. Your ability to overcome Satan's attacks is in direct proportion to your knowledge and mastery of the Word of God. So read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Learn it. Hear it every time it's preached. Why should you come back on a Sunday night at 6 when you came at 1045? Because you need the word. Why should you come back at Wednesday at 7 after a long day's at work? Because you need the word. Why should you get into an adult Sunday school class on Sunday morning at 945? You don't feel like coming to church that early? Because you need the word. Why should you go buy a devotional book out there on your way out today if you haven't? Because you need the word every day. Parents, the same is true for your children. Your kids' ability to overcome Satan's attack in their life is in direct proportion to their knowledge and mastery of the Bible. So yes, have them in sports. Yes, enroll them in school activities. Cheer them on in all of those things. But make sure that when they're 18 and they leave your house, they're leaving with the knowledge of the Word of God. That's why I love our Christian academy. There's no matching what our students get through a Bible-centered curriculum. There's no matching it. Do we have everything to offer a child that our government-funded school does? Absolutely not. We have a lot, but not everything. Here's what we do have. The Bible. And nobody's going to take this out of our school. Nobody's going to take this out of our students' hands. They at any point can take a knee and, and bow and pray out loud in any classroom they want. They can read this. They can write about it. They can memorize it. They can do whatever they want. And if you are a public school student, hear me and hear me well. You ought to take this Bible, put it under your arms, and walk unashamedly through the halls of your school every day. You ought to plop it down on your desk every day so it can remind you, public school student, of the greatest textbook, the textbook that can make a difference in your life. You ought to go just like this, walk it through the hall, not proud, not arrogant, not cocky, but this is your sword. This is what keeps you alive in the battle and you ought to be telling people every day public school student that you believe in this book not by what you say necessarily but by how you live you are the only hope public school student that some of your classmates have the only hope and some of you live just like them and you don't care about it some of you are too ashamed to put that on your desk so tomorrow morning 
if it's not a snow day. Take your Bible to school. Put it on your desk just like that. Teachers, take your Bible to school. Put it on the desk. Let's review and I'll be done. You're in a battle. A battle as strenuous and dangerous as what happened on the beaches of Normandy. For the Christian, it's D-Day every day. Every day, your enemy and his armies of demons are upon you. And here's what makes it so hard. He doesn't generally attack you. He strategically attacks you. Brother Randy, he knows your weakness. So he's not going to attack you like he attacks your wife. Miss Amy, he knows where you're vulnerable tomorrow. And he knows what time you're vulnerable. And it's different than the way heaven and Sandy are. And he's not going to just put a blanket attack over all three of you. He's going he's to hone it in. Uncle Ricky's going to hone it in for you tonight. And every single person, he's got a tailor-made attack. So that ought to bring you to the altar running to Jesus today. Not scared. Not in fear. After all, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But you ought to say, God, I've been leaving the house without any pieces of armor on. No Bible. No truth. My identity's wrapped up in all kinds of things that aren't you. So God, instead of running into the battle ill-prepared and naive. God, I want to stand strong, strong in you today. And you run to the altar and say, God, clothe me with the armor. You know it's figurative. You know it's metaphorical. But every day it's, it's knowing what Paul means by that and saying this, I'm going I'm to cover the weak parts of my life with the gospel truth. Where I'm vulnerable, the grace is going to make me strong. Because where the, where the grace and gospel of God has fortified you, Satan cannot attack you. If you agree with the Bible, say amen.